This is Rob with episode two of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. I do not get sick of that. That is awesome. Shout out to Kai Brewster. All right, for episode two of the Folly Coffee podcast, uh, I wanted to delve into more of the business side of things. It's a question I get from a lot of people about starting Folly Coffee, about starting Filterra cold brewed coffees. Is like the first steps. Like, what were the first steps that I took to even start a business? Uh, now, I haven't started anything outside of the food beverage world. So today's uh, topic for the episode is going to be how to start a small food and beverage business. Uh, it's going to delve into kind of what I've been through. Obviously, I've only started businesses within Minnesota. So a lot of the stuff is going to apply directly to Minnesota Department of Agriculture, Minnesota Department of Health. Uh, but these are things that every state has some form or variation of what I'll be talking about in starting a small food and beverage business. I'm going to start the episode in talking about kind of the traditional uh, trajectory of starting a small food and beverage business. And then I'll go into the specific details of how I did it with Folly Coffee Roasters and then how I did it with Filterra Cold Brewed Coffees. We are seeing a resurgence in the demand for local and quality and small batch made good. And this is allowing a massive opportunity for small business owners and small entrepreneurs to be able to enter the market commercially. And in the food and beverage category, I kind of see uh, two major uh, entrants to market. The first one would be someone who kind of starts in the business side of things. Uh, they, they see this resurgence and the demand for locally quality, local quality made goods. They see a business opportunity and then they go, which food and beverage product can I launch within this category? Now, I was recently at a podcast filming for how I built this uh, with the owners of Boom Chicka Pop, uh, Dan and Angie Bastian. And Dan made a really great point that resonated with me that with this resurgence of demand for locally made goods, uh, we're seeing a lot of people get into the industry with only the goal of selling in mind. So the goal is I want to start a business, I want to scale it, and I want to sell it. Uh, this is a trend I personally am not a huge fan of. Not because, you know, somebody works hard and builds a great business shouldn't be able to get a payday at the end. I don't consider it selling out. If you've worked hard and you're at the point where it makes sense, there's always a way to make that work for both sides. But the reason I don't like it is because a lot of people that start on the pure business-minded side of things end up making a product that they're not passionate about. Now, passion isn't a necessity for a product to do well, but as a small food and beverage producer, it is something that can get you your foot in the door at a lot of places, and it's something to build a brand upon. And so you see people entering the food and beverage category with a product with the sole goal of scaling quickly and selling the company. And this can result in a product that doesn't ooze passion. And customers these days are extremely good at sniffing that out. Uh, like I've said before, we've got supercomputers in our pocket. It's easier than ever to be able to find out anything about a product before buying it. And so I would uh, use one word of caution that if you're starting in this way, that starting a business is what you're passionate about and food and beverage is the category you've decided to enter into, make sure that you don't run into this issue of creating a product with no passion and no story behind it. Uh, like I said, passion and a story aren't a necessity for a product to succeed, but it is a huge thing that especially younger consumers want to find in the products they're consuming. Uh, on the other side of the two major categories of people entering food and beverage, you've got the people who already have a food or beverage product in mind. Oftentimes, it's the grandma's recipe. It's, oh, I grew up eating this. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of people from different ethnicities and different cultures uh, eating foods or condiments that they've grown up eating, and they go to the store and say, how is this not a thing? Uh, one that I've, I've heard recently, and if you steal my idea, I want in on it, is a buddy of mine went to Australia and said the craziest thing is there's no buffalo sauce over there, which makes sense because it was invented in Buffalo, New York uh, for buffalo wings, and chicken th wings used to not be a thing. It's actually a truly American thing, but I'm like, how is buffalo sauce one of the greatest sauces of all time, not a thing in Australia. Someone's got to do that. Cut me in on it. Anyway, you've got people with a food product in mind. 
and they go, well, I want to bring this to market. It's either uh, an existing category. Let's take something uh, really common uh, at this point, uh, something like salsa. It's like salsa is this thing. It's a very common thing to find at the grocery store, but you've got a salsa recipe that is the best recipe you've ever tasted it. Everybody you've ever brought it to, any party, any dinner, whatever, everybody that tastes it says, <laughs> that tastes it, that tastes it says, I need this recipe. And after time, you're thinking, holy smokes, I think I have something here. This recipe is unbelievable. Everybody says it's the best. I want to bring this to market. That's kind of the other side. Now, the pros to starting on the business side is you can capitalize on emerging trends. So right now, there are huge emerging trends for health-conscious, diet-specific food and beverage products. So you're seeing a lot of people jump into things like kombucha because of the probiotics, uh, gluten-free or vegan and paleo, keto-friendly crackers, granolas, cereals, breads. Uh, And this is great uh, because it can get your foot in the door at a lot of places because you have one of these emerging trends. But the challenge here is you don't hold a huge competitive advantage over large companies because they are also very in tune to these emerging trends. So if you see this, if you're a business-minded person, you say, I want to get into food and beverage. I see that vegan is in growing popularity. I'm going to create a vegan dip uh, that is quote-unquote cheese-based, unlike any other vegan cheese dip that's out there. And you can start off really great, but larger companies are also in tune with these trends and they get IRI data, which is uh, scan data from grocery stores. And when they see emerging trends, they enter with products. And so you need to make sure if you're starting from this side that you don't go too quickly in your recipe formulation. So the pros to being on the business side would be that you can be in a category that buyers are very interested interested in. The con would be that you don't have the recipe. It hasn't been honed down. You need to really make sure that that is a priority in creating the product. Great. I always say that great branding and packaging and marketing can get someone to buy it the first time, but it's a great product that gets people to buy it the second time. And then on the flip side, if you've got that product, if it's this type of thing that you're just compelled to bring to market because of the taste and the feedback you're getting, you've got the flip side. You've got something that people absolutely love. It's a recipe that you've honed down. It's something that you know that people resonate with. On the flip side is that it might be a highly competitive market already. It might not be a growing category. It might be something that buyers just aren't looking for in general. So those are kind of the two major ways that I think people tend to start in the food and beverage category. Uh, So at this point, you kind of have a product, whether you created this product on uh, the business side of things or the uh, you already had the product, already had the recipe. Uh, The second time, uh, the second thing to do would be to test it on as many friends and family as you can. If you already have this product, this is going to be a much faster uh, process. But I will say that you get different feedback when you bring something uh, to a party that's like, oh, you're just being nice. I brought this salsa taste of salsa. Oh, this is good. Good job. It's a different response than if you bring it to someone and be like, I'm thinking about devoting my life to selling this salsa. Will you please analyze this with every fiber of your being? It's going to be a much different analytical process. Uh, And so you can't have something that's like, yeah, this is, this is as good as that Tostitos that I buy because somebody might actually compliment you on that. It needs to be, this is 10 times better than anything I've ever tasted, or they'll give, ask for very honest feedback. Uh, This process, again, will probably go faster if you've already got something that you're extremely passionate about because you've probably already put the work into uh, making it a great product. This process will likely take longer if you're entering from the business-minded side of things because if you're entering purely from the business-minded side of food and beverage, if it's not a product you know a lot about or it's not a category you know a lot about, so if you're looking to enter the vegan cheese dip market, but you're not a vegan and you haven't really eaten any vegan cheese dips, it would be in your best interest to either partner with somebody that is extremely passionate or to at least find some experts to be able to test your products on that you know their feedback is more valuable than your own opinion about how it tastes. And you can already see how not 
being passionate about your own product can lead to problems because you can't even evaluate the quality of your own product based on taste evaluation alone because you're not uh, the, the leading expert in that category. Now, that's not something that can't be learned over time, but upfront, this process of recipe formulation and really perfecting a product uh, will be a little bit more difficult than if you're coming from the side of having a recipe already. So at this point, you've got your product. Um, maybe you've thought about branding, maybe you haven't. I recommend at this point, you see this traditionally, a lot of different food and beverage business is finding a local, local farmer's market and ripping through a farmer's market for a summer. Uh, the su this would be a really good way to formulate your recipe and really hone it down because you can get live feedback from people. Hand out samples at the farmer's market while you're selling your product. Get on-the-spot feedback about what people like, what don't they like, what should change, what should stay the same. And then also, this is a great opportunity to ask people, what is it about the product they like the most? So before finishing your branding, before finishing your packaging and your message to the customer, figure out what the customer actually likes about your product. It would really suck if you made packaging that you're like, this is the spiciest salsa ever. And then someone's like, oh, I actually just like that it's no sugar. And so you're marketing it as the spiciest salsa in the world, but what people really like about it is that it's no sugar. And you have this finished branding and packaging that says spiciest salsa in the world. But really your customer that's gonna buy it over and over is most interested in it because it's the only zero sugar salsa on the market. Uh, th that is something I recommend, whether it's through the friends and family farmer's market though, you'll uh, run away from a lot of that bias that comes with the friend, friends and family things because hopefully your friends and family want to see you succeed and see you do well. Uh, and a, a byproduct of that is they can be nice and not say mean things about something that might not be the greatest. So a farmer's market or even just doing pop-ups uh, can be a great way to do that. Now, something like a farmer's market or a pop-up if you're generating a small amount of sales annually, this is possible in many states, including Minnesota, with just what's called a, a cottage food license. Uh, you can simply Google if your state has something like the cottage food license. It can also be called a farmer's market license. The cottage food license or farmer's market license is something that allows you to be able to produce your food product in your own kitchen at home without a commercial license and sell it to people directly. You are not allowed to sell your product indirectly. So if you were doing this, you could not sell it to a store to resell, but you can sell directly to the end consumer at a farmer's market and in some cases online. Be sure to specify when you're applying for your cottage food or farmer's market license if e-commerce is a part of this. A big part of that will be shelf stability. Uh, different categories of food and beverage are going to be classified differ differently depending on their shelf stability. I'll get more into that later. Uh, in the state of Minnesota, a cottage food, uh, cottage food license applies to any business doing less than $18,000 of revenue annually. This is perfect for someone just starting up. That way, if you're reaching $18,000 of revenue from a far, farmer's market over the summer, you've got a really, really good problem on your hands. This is a great thing that states do to be able to allow small food businesses to be able to start and encourage entrepreneurs to start. Uh, so at this point, you're, you've got your product, you're either doing a farmer's market, you're doing pop-ups, you're testing it on friends and family, you've, you've got an idea of what it is people love about your product, now you want to figure out your branding. Uh, this is something that a lot of people do not spend enough time on. They choose a name quickly, uh, and then they just find a fun font on Microsoft Word uh, or Word Art or whatever it may be, or they go to Fiverr.com uh, and have someone create a logo for 10 bucks and they go, this is my logo, I'm running with it. This is a really hard thing that once you've made a logo to go back and change it once you've launched. This is something where I go, unless you yourself are a professional, hire someone to do this. It is expensive. It's going to be, in the early stages, the most expensive part of the process. But if you don't have great branding and great packaging, you're not going to be able to garner interest from people unless you're there talking to them about it, which is not possible if you plan to launch commercially. A cost-effective way to do this is to find someone that is looking to build their portfolio, their marketing and uh, 
brand design portfolio. In many cases, this would be someone that's currently a student at a university or college or someone who's recently graduated looking for a job. Now, this is not to say to go out and find someone that I'll let you do my branding for free. Wow, what a privilege. You'll let me work for free. You still want to pay, but also realize that the addition of a new brand or logo to someone's portfolio is also a value. So someone with a smaller portfolio, it is a higher ceiling for the, uh, come on, who's sending me an email again during this podcast? (laughs) Anyway, someone with a small portfolio is going to be more affordable, but you also won't have a large portfolio to review to know that it's going to be a really great job on your logo. Someone with a large proven portfolio knows what exactly what their time is worth. They're going to charge more because they know and they've proven that they can do a great job on creating a new concept. So it's kind of pros and cons of both sides. But for someone starting a small food and beverage business with a, th- a shoestring budget, I highly recommend finding someone uh, hopefully through like friends or family, uh, someone that you can get a referral that they're talented, unproven, where it's a win-win for both sides. You get great design work. They're going to work hard at it to make sure it works for you for future referrals. And then they also get to build their portfolio. If it's someone that's still a student, this is a great portfolio builder when they're applying for jobs. If they're fresh out of college looking for a job, it's the same thing applies. They've got something to be able to use. It's a win-win. Uh, they're getting, they're making money for their time. Uh, they're getting something of value to add to their portfolio. And you're getting your initial brand concept. So to quickly recap that thought, because I think it requires restatement here, is unless you are a professional yourself, hire out brand design. Great designers will take all the stuff bouncing around in your head and put it in something in front of you and you'll say, I'm so glad I did this. Number one thing I recommend for branding. So from here, you've either tested yourself, uh, tested yourself, it's kind of testing yourself in a way, in many ways, but at this point, you've tested your food and beverage product on either all your friends and family, you've done pop-ups, uh, hopefully done a farmer's market, maybe even two circuits of a farmer's market, and you're confident in your recipe, you're confident in the product and the concept, you know what customers like the most about it at this point, you've got a brand and packaging concept created and finished, Now, how do I go commercial? The first step to going commercial is you're going to need to find what's called a commissary kitchen or a commercial kitchen. Uh, For reference, commissary spelled C-O-M-M-I-S-S-A-R-Y. It took me forever to figure out how to pronounce that word. I was saying uh, commissary for a long time because I had only read it and then I said it out loud and someone said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Luckily, that person was a friend of mine and I didn't look like an absolute idiot more than I already am. But a commissary kitchen is typically a shared commercial space. So it's someone who has a large kitchen space And the way they make their money is they rent it out to multiple food businesses. In some cases, it will be a kitchen uh, that's owned by an existing food business with additional space they don't need that they can rent out to food businesses. So you either go to one that is an established commissary commercial kitchen and saying, here's my requirements for space. Or you go to someone with an existing kitchen and say, are there any hours you're not using your kitchen or extra space you have that I could help to kind of raise your bottom line by paying rent on a monthly monthly or hourly basis? The upside to a commissary kitchen versus, versus going into your own space right away is it's going to be a lot more cost effective. You're not going to have to pay uh, upfront down payment if you're buying a building and ha- putting down a mortgage. Uh, it's obviously lower, lower risk than that. But even leasing a building, being committed to a lease upfront will put a lot of upfront pressure on the business to be able to generate revenue, revenue quickly. And that will cut in your savings really, really fast. Uh, and so a commissary kitchen or a commercial kitchen in many cases will have a small monthly rent and then you pay by the hour of your usage on a monthly basis. A lot of the times the rent gives you so many hours a month and set times and then anytime you use above that, you're just going to pay an on top hourly fee for that. So you can see how being a really small food and beverage business that a commissary kitchen is very advantageous because you're only paying for what you really use it for. Now, as you grow in scale, 
it can become very pricey because you're going to start using it more and more. And then all of a sudden that hourly rate that seemed small at first now is going to become very large. And if you get to the point that you're using it almost full time, you're going to be paying well above what you'd be paying for uh, rent on a lease or your own space. And I should mention that the commissary or commercial kitchen, I'm referring specifically to like fast moving consumer packaged goods or uh, wholesale products that you're creating at this point. Uh, I'm going to save opening your own storefront or opening your own location retail to be serving directly to the customers for another episode because I'd really like to have a guest uh, come on the podcast to talk to that because Folly and Filterra are both uh, wholesale businesses. We sell to retailers to resell our products. And so I don't have enough knowledge on that side of the business to be able to talk to opening the storefront. So when I say finding a commissary or commercial kitchen, this is for, for someone who's interested in creating a product to either package and sell at retail or to sell in bulk to uh, wholesale resellers. So at this point, uh, you, you have your product, you've got your branding, you've got your packaging, you've done a farmer's market or you've done pop-ups, you've uh, perfected your product through friends and family, uh, you go to a commissary kitchen, you get approval to be able to work out of their space. At this point, you're going to go to the state to get approval for your product. It is much, much easier to get licensing for shelf-stable products versus non-shelf-stable products. For example, we sell roasted coffee at Folly Coffee. It's fairly easy to get a license if everything's in place. And when I say easy, it's still not easy. But it's much easier to get a license for something that is shelf-stable as an end product because it's not at risk for bacterial growth with uh, when compared to something that's not shelf-stable. So know straight away if your product is shelf-stable or not. Uh, it has a lot to do with the final pH and acidity of your product. So the easiest way to find that out is just to Google uh, acidity of a shelf-stable product and see if your state has any differing regulations from federal regulations on shelf stability. And this will dictate a lot as to how you have to go about getting licensing from the state. So go to your uh, local department of agriculture or local department of health to start to look up guidelines for getting food licensing within your state. Within Minnesota, if you're not serving uh, retail uh, prepared foods directly to consumer, it's going to go through the Department of Agriculture. So you're going to go to the Minnesota Department of Agriculture Licensing Department, figure out who covers your county. Now, some people will go out and request an inspection uh, they'll request a final inspection without having ever talked to anyone. This is technically really the way to do it, but something that I think is of huge benefit is to reach out to the Department of Agriculture first, explain what your concept is, explain where you're doing it, explain and have all the documents ready for them and say, this is what I'm going to submit for approval. Is there anything you would add or remove? And this does two things. One, you'll likely get great feedback on the things you're missing. And then two, it gives you a personal contact at the Department of Agriculture. Having a name at the Department of Agriculture or Department of Health is going to be of huge benefit so that you can reference them later in the process and also use the feedback that they've already given you in the approval process. Uh, a, an application has much more credibility when it has a name attached to it within the department than one coming out of the blue from a brand and product no one's heard of uh, with someone with no background in opening food and beverage businesses. Generally, the most important thing to have in an application and make sure this is done to an extreme level of detail is what's referred to as a HACCP, H-A-C-C-P. Uh, this stands for Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Point. Uh, every hazard analysis and critical control point is essentially in the process of making your product at every point and stage of making your product, are there any potential health risks or concerns? If there are any potential health risks or concerns, what do you do to mitigate that risk? This can be from very simple to very complex. Roasted beans are very simple. One of the uh, critical control points we have is when we have finished roasting the coffee. 
Uh, well, what if something got into the coffee? We do a literal visual inspection of the beans to make sure there has nothing that's gotten into the coffee. We also do more to ensure these processes, but that is one critical control point. This can be as complex, and this is where non-shelf stable comes in. It can get as complex as we do pH testing on all of our finished products to make sure that the acidity is below the required or is above the required point to create shelf stability. It's a non-shelf stable product. Uh, at this point, it is subject to bacterial growth to mitigate this risk. Uh, we use heat treatment to be able to create shelf stability within this product. For different products, there's a variety of different critical control points that need to be considered. But in this step, it is much more advantageous to go into extreme detail than to not have enough detail of every potential health risk that could occur in the production and packaging of your product. The most common things are going to be um, it's being handled by a person. So I'm wearing food safe gloves, mask. Uh, for some foods, it's as much as I'm wearing a complete body protected suit to make sure no hair, no uh, oils, whatever it may be, that, that no contact is being made directly uh, with skin at any point in the process. Um, and this is something you can Google is HATSUP procedures. Again, H-A-C-C-P, HATSUP procedure examples by state. Uh, you'll likely be able to find a template that will work really nicely for you. Uh, also, reach out to your local food and beverage community. Go to your local co-op. Find a product that's similar to yours, whether it's the exact same category. This can get a little dicey because if you are reaching out to someone that is eventually going to be a direct competitor, some people are not going to be receptive to helping someone that's literally looking to enter their market and compete with them. So finding a like-minded product and asking for an example of their HATSUP procedure may be a better way to do it. But in some food and beverage communities, it's the uh, rising tide raises all boats. This is In the Twin Cities, the coffee scene is exactly like this. I, I reached out to a, a ton of roasters before opening Folly Coffee, and not one person said, I'm not interested because you may be a competitor. So you never know, but do be warned that if someone says, I'm not going to help you launch a business that's going to be a direct competitor, that that may occur. So at this point, you've got all the documents you need. You have a very thorough HATSA procedure in place. So at this point, you're going to reach out to the state with your application, uh, get your initial approval on the application, and then you're going to set up a, an, an inspection date. Now, here's the nice thing about using a commercial kitchen versus opening your own space. You don't have to get the space license. So you don't need the Department of Health and Agriculture to come in and license that your space is uh, certified to produce food because that's the benefit of using a commercial kitchen or, or commissary kitchen, or commissary as I used to say. The building will already be certified. So really what you're trying to prove is that your processes and the equipment you're using are compliant with all the regulations they have in place. So once you have the inspection set up, someone will come in and they'll either on the spot tell you you're approved, give you your temporary license and tell you that your license is going to be in the mail within 10 days. Or you're going to finish up and they're going to say, here's everything that you need to change or augment to be able to get your full approval. At that point, obviously do what they say to be able to get your approval and then schedule another inspection and eventually you'll get your approval. So at this point, you've got your product, you've tested it, farmer's market, pop-up, let's go to the commissary kitchen, you get your approval. You officially are a fully licensed business to sell to retailers commercially. Now what? So this is where we shift from what the regulatory side to finding customers. Too often, I see people waiting to talk to retailers about their product. This should be almost like day, not day one, let's say like after you've got the recipe in mind. You want to be at a point that if you're talking to potential future retailers that you have samples. But even before you have the brand fully designed out, before you've got your license, Try to meet with local co-ops, meeting with other uh, local food and beverage owners. Ask them what they did to get into stores. 
meeting with local retailers and sampling them on their product and getting their feedback is going to really educate you on what buyers are looking for in their products. It will educate you on to whether they like your product and what they value. Now, when you are a small food and beverage company, your biggest advantage is straight away going to be that you're local. It's quality made, small batch. Uh, if, if it's a product you have a great story behind, that's going to be a big advantage. Uh, and the other is that the owner of the company can be in store talking to their customers. The most commonly requested things at traditional retail like grocery and co-op is going to be sampling. It's something you, you're not going to hear any food and beverage owner that started a small food and beverage company from the ground up that wasn't in-store sampling almost like every weekend when you're starting. So this is a huge advantage to have. So know how you're going to sample your product too. Some products, it's very easy to know how to sample. If you're a salsa, find a complimentary chip or maybe even find a local chip company and say, would you like to partner on sampling? If you're a vegan cheese dip, find a vegan product to be able to dip the cheese into, or maybe even just using a toothpick or a popsicle stick so that someone can taste the cheese on its own. Some products are a little bit more involved than how to sample, but that's something that's obviously needs to be figured out uh, per the product. Finding customers in the traditional retail sense is, again, something that could be an entirely uh, new podcast or podcast episode about how to sell food and beverage products. But the biggest advice I can give is align yourself with your customer's goals. Once you find out what it is your customer's goals are with their own business, you can find out how you fit into that picture. A great example is a co-op might say, we're looking to expand our selection of locally made goods. That's very, very obvious how you might fit into that uh, that product mix because you're a locally made good. Some retailers might say, we're looking to add more higher priced items into our mix so that we have increased profitability in our overall store SKUs. Someone might say, we're looking to increase our overall margin blend. And so maybe you have a low priced item, but it's really high margin. You have to know what it is that's great about your product, not just from the taste side, but also the pricing side. And that's a huge benefit of meeting with someone like a retailer before you finalized branding, packaging, pricing, is getting feedback on these items are things that will really dictate how you price out your item. Don't only price your item based on how other similar products are priced because it might not be big enough margin to be able to grow in any capacity and it might not be big enough for margin for a retailer to even want to carry you, which is an unfortunate truth. If you have a higher quality product, don't be afraid to price it higher than the highest priced item on the shelf. But again, potentially more detail on that in a later episode. Now, I think one of the biggest reasons small and locally made quality goods are now becoming a bigger part of the industry is because of the resource and resources and tools we have to reach customers. This is one of the biggest reasons I, I'm starting this podcast is because I go, if it's fairly inexpensive for me to start, is a way for me to directly communicate with people who may be interested in Folly Coffee or just things we're interested in in general, why wouldn't I do it? So things like Instagram, Facebook, social media, Twitter, uh, podcasting, blogging, these are all things you should be doing from the get-go. And a lot of people go, well, why the heck would I start a blog if, I'm only gonna, if I only have three customers? Well, uh, taking a long-term view of it is if you start a blog that you're able to build great content over time, as you gain more customers, customers will go back and read content created all the way from the beginning. So even though you might start with only a few people interested in even reading any blog posts you put about, you can later reference it back to original blog posts and it can establish you as an expert within your field. So this is something that's been huge for me personally with Folly Coffees. Our Instagram has been the biggest way to reach customers and also build credibility as a brand. Uh, I don't claim to be an expert on these things by any means. Like this podcast, I'm totally winging it and just hope people dig what I'm doing. Uh, but it's one of those things that if it's inexpensive, why not do it? Obviously, the biggest constraint is time. But if you can fit it in your schedule, 
prioritize the things that you want to do personally. If you love writing, start blogging. If you're like me and you're okay rambling on about anything, start a podcast. Uh, Your website needs to be on point. It needs to express your brand identity. Make sure your digital presence is as strong as if you were telling the story to somebody in person. So video is a great way to do that. Try to find a local video a videographer, videographer or media company and make a one-minute video about who you are and what your company is. The online emergence and the increased technology of phones and being able to look up anything on the spot is one of the biggest advantages local and quality producers have against uh, national chains, uh, national chains and national products is national products have budgets to advertise traditionally through radio, through TV, through all these like national uh, advertising platforms. So you have to find lanes and pursue them passionately to be able to get someone to even want to buy your product the first time. So that's at this point, You've got your product, you've got your commercial license, you've launched commercially, hopefully you've talked to some retailers, found people interested in your product. Sample, 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 and that is how you start a small food and beverage company. Now, hopefully, someday, many years down the road, I can make a podcast about how to scale a, a food company, a small food and beverage company. Uh, at this point, this is where I'm at. You know, we are sampling uh, constantly. We are pursuing every channel of uh, efficient marketing on a shoestring budget and growing really only through having great products. So, if you can get your business to the point that you outgrow the commissary kitchen, and trust me, this is. A stressful point to be at. When you're at the point that you've outgrown the commissary or commercial kitchen, this probably means that you're packaging, you're producing, you're making in, if you still have a job, in all of your own free time, you're hiring people, and it's getting to the point that either the physical space of the kitchen is cramping your style, or you just can't keep up with the demand of packaging and producing enough of your product to be able to keep up with your retailers. At this point, The most traditional next step in scaling would be finding a co-packer. It's spelled exactly like it sounds, C-O-P-A-C-K-E-R, sometimes with a dash in between co and packer, sometimes not. But what a co-packer does is if you find a commercial co-packer, you go to them with your recipe or a product see if they can make it within their own kitchen. So you need to find a co-packer that has the capability to make your product and then essentially they make it for you. They make it, they package it, and so all you're responsible for then is the delivery and distribution of your product. The obvious upside to this is it's going to free up a massive amount of your time to be able to focus on uh, finding new customers, supporting your existing customers, sampling more. If you want to increase your pull per point, your, uh, your essentially how many uh, products you're selling, uh, per, not, not how many products, but how much of your product you're selling within stores, uh, you could focus your time on sampling more. Now, Copacker obviously is going to charge you for their services, so it's going to take a cut of your margin. So it needs to your business needs to be at a point where you can take a cut on margin, uh, still be able to generate revenue, and be able to use your own time in a sense that's worth more than however much margin you're giving out. And so the co-packer step is the next traditional step. And then after that, you've got uh, moving into your own space. And then you're really getting into foreign territory uh, on my side of things because anything beyond that is how do you just scale the heck out of a business. And so at this point in the podcast, if you were only interested in hearing about the steps of like a traditional food and beverage small business, this this is where you can uh, turn off this podcast episode. At this point, I'm going to launch into kind of Folly Coffee, how I did it, uh, and then Filtera Cold Brewed Coffees and the path uh, that that I took with those and how it relates to the more traditional uh, path. So with Folly Coffee, it started for me with just an intense passion of coffee. Um, I will, there's a top three podcast I did with Cities 97 that goes into the full story of starting Folly Coffee and like how I got there, um, that, that, that I'll place in our podcast list if you want to hear the Folly Coffee story. But just know that 
it was well over two years of just being insanely passionate of about specialty coffee, going to every roaster I could find, traveling across the country to find different coffee cultures. And it didn't even start as a business idea for me. It started as just, I love this style of coffee, light roasted, high-end, single origin specialty coffee. I want, I want to taste all of it that I possibly can. Then it got to the point that I was like, why are there not more of these, especially in the Midwest, especially in my hometown of the Twin Cities? And then that's what that's what started the whole business idea. So at this point, uh, I was definitely not an expert in making the product. Uh, I was sample roasting, but I knew that I would need to find someone that could do the commercial roasting if if this was going to be uh, a real thing. Someone with a depth of knowledge to be able to make coffee to the the level that I would be happy with. And so. In this sense, I couldn't do the traditional route of, oh, I'll find a commercial kitchen and start doing it on my own because I wasn't confident enough in my own abilities as a coffee roaster to be able to launch at a full-scale commercial level. And so I needed to find a uh, find someone with the talents to be able to do that. Eventually, I quit my job. I, I did beer sales. Uh, I was down in St. Louis at the time. I, I quit my job, uh, moved back home, and was beginning to kind of build the brand concept. I uh, am extremely fortunate that my sister's good friend from college is an extremely talented brand designer. He's fresh out of college, didn't have a job, was looking to build his for- uh, portfolio and gave me a favorable rate to be able to build the entire brand concept. Uh, the way he did that was really cool. And I would recommend this uh, if you find any designer that they do this themselves is they created what's called a mood board. He asked me, send me just every brand you think is cool and you want Folly to be like, any brand that you don't like or you don't want Folly to be like, their logos, uh, the fonts they use, whatever. And so I sent him like 15 pages on a Word document of pictures of logos I liked and they weren't uh, coffee companies. In fact, I, I don't know if I included many coffee companies within that. Uh, one that I always remember is like Steve Aoki's branding, the DJ. I've always thought was so cool. It just like exudes energy. So I, a lot of them ended up being like DJs, like Steve Aoki and Marshmallow. And these guys are like all these just really cool. You see them and you go, I just, I don't, even if I'm not into EDM, which I'm not really, that I just like want to know what these guys are all about. And he, he created uh, the, uh, the brand concept at this point. So I'd quit my job. I'd moved back. Building the brand. Still don't have a roaster. Uh, actually had someone lined up. It fell through. Couldn't make a deal that we both agreed on. Uh, and I'll interject quickly about uh, name selection is also a very, very difficult thing. Uh, I don't really have any fantastic recommendations except that it has a story. If it's your own name, the story is obvious. If it's your grandmother's recipe and it's her name, the story is obvious. But whatever name you choose, make sure it has a story or really great reasoning behind why you chose it. Not just, oh, I thought it sounded good. Second, I hear someone with their own product, like, oh, I thought it sounded good. It's like, oh, that's that's cool. So not a lot of thought, huh? Anyway, uh, so like Folly comes from in Minneapolis, there's a Stone Arch Bridge. If you're from Minneapolis, you definitely know it. You probably took your prom pictures there. If you're not from Minnesota, you've probably never heard of it. So I really like that. It created a direct connection with Minnesota. Uh, James J. Hill was the tycoon that was funding the building of the bridge. And everyone in Minneapolis is like, that's a terrible idea. So they called it Hill's Folly. And it wasn't until that was completed that everybody fell in love with it. And so my biggest thing for Luke uh, Schroeder, who did the design, is I was just like, here's all the brands I love. Here's all the ones I don't want to be like. The only requirement is that it incorporates the Stone Arch Bridge into the logo. So if you look closely at our house bean, which is our main logo, uh, his mouth is an outline of the Stone Arch Bridge. Now getting back to uh, the step I needed to get to to find uh, a place to roast the coffee, I got really just dumb luck that I'm at a farmer's market. Uh, there's this guy selling coffee out of the back of his car. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, he is, his name is Ken, Ken Schweikert. He's our head roaster now, but I go, this is amazing coffee. Turns out he's roasting on a commercial roaster that he bought from a flooded cafe, uh, rebuilt it himself, is roasting in Silver Lake, Minnesota, an hour west of the cities. And on the spot, I go, this might be weird, but could I come 
roast with you sometime. And after roasting with him a few times, I saw he was incredibly, incredibly detailed and uh, a really great roaster. And the coffees he, he, he was roasting were fantastic. And ultimately, we, he had his cottage food license, so he was allowed to sell at farmer's markets and directly to consumer, but was not allowed to sell commercially. And he wanted to get his commercial license, so he agreed that if I helped him build out his space to get the commercial license, that he'd roast with me. And so when I say help him build out his space, I mean literally it was me and him putting up a wall to separate out the food space, laminating the floors, uh, sealing all the cracks, putting in uh, sinks and all food safe uh, materials to match all the inspector's uh, requirements. And I had at this point reached out to the local inspector from McLeod County, which is where Silver Lake is, uh, sent him a drawing of our potential plan. He said, this looks good. Uh, I even referenced every time we bought something new, I said, if we bought this, would this suffice for our plan? And luckily he was really responsive and really engaged. And we were able to, we take a, what we thought was a three month project turns into seven months, mainly just because the last steps of like getting all the stuff in place and getting an inspection set up and getting plumbers out to like approve the plumbing and electrician to come out to approve the electric that took quite a while. Uh, and so we were able to launch in January of 2018. Uh, so essentially didn't do the farmer's market route. And the way I could justify that in my own mind is that these these couple of years, really three years at this point of just intensely, intensely pursuing specialty coffee, I was confident uh, in my own ability to be able to identify and taste a great coffee. And then also while we were building out the space, we were roasting samples and I was bringing it to friends and family and begging them to try and bringing it to potential retailers and anyone I could find in the specialty coffee community or anyone that I would consider a coffee expert, I would bring it to them and say, hey, could you just taste this? Any feedback is appreciated. And we're getting really good feedback on our initial samples. So we launched in January 2018 and also fortunate in the sense that Ken already had a fairly large commercial roaster. So this has allowed us to be able to, even after a year and eight months into it at growing at a pretty steady clip that our space is large enough from a storage capacity and the roaster is large enough to be able to keep up with our demand. So we've been very fortunate in that regard. Now, in that whole process, we launched in January of 2018. A few months later, a buddy of mine, Brandon Martin, comes to me and goes, hey, if I took your coffees, cold brewed them, and sold them commercially, would you be interested in that? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds amazing. And he's like, would you want to do this with me? And I'm like, well, actually, not really. Uh, cold brew is really saturated. There's a ton of major players in the market. Uh, there's a lot of people doing it. I'm not not really interested in it just because there's so many people already doing cold brew. And it doesn't, you know, it's it's kind of like an energy drink replacement at this point. You can find it anywhere. And he says, all right, all right. But first, I've been working on cold brew recipes for a couple of years. Uh, I want you to taste some of the cold brew I'm making. And then also, what if we only did it in kegs? And I'm like, now we're talking because cold brew on tap is something that like it, it to a lot of companies seems kind of like a small thing it's like a small niche within a category but when you're a small business it's a huge opportunity when other people aren't pursuing it and so uh i said pending the tasting of your cold brews i'll definitely consider this and he brings me my own folly coffee house bean cold brewed and it was the first cold brew I tasted where I could actually taste origin in the cup. And at that point, I was like, I'm in. And so we took a more traditional path with uh, Filterra cold brewed coffees. Again, in choosing the name, we wanted to have a story. So Filterra spelled P-H-I-L-T-E-R-A. The word filter with a P-H is the Greek word for love potion. And we kind of put the A on it to make it our own had a nice sound to it, has the story that Love Potion, we're creating something that we're passionate about. And then the logo is a combination of ancient Nordic symbols uh, for love and energy. We also do things differently than a lot of cold brew companies in the sense that we, we did it as a separate business because we partner with multiple roasters. And so 
in looking at any business you might start, look at your competitive advantages. And we decided our competitive advantages would be one, we're served on tap exclusively. So if you're a bar, restaurant, cafe uh, serving on tap, no, they can't get it anywhere except for there. Two, it just tastes better, but getting people to taste it is the hard part. And then three is that we had a really wide selection of different local specialty coffee roasters. And so we're coming to the full selection of cold brews. But anyway, uh, we also kind of skipped the farmer's market kind of big trial period here uh, because I was comfortable enough in evaluating coffees, knowing that this was legitimately some of the best cold brew I've ever tasted in my life. And then uh, knowing that this like specialty lane was an emerging category that no one here in the Twin Cities was really looking at closely and pursuing aggressively. And so at this point, we went out, found a commercial kitchen or a commissary kitchen in St. Paul. Uh, we were able to get them to sign off uh, for us as a tenant. We then created a hats up procedure. Brandon went way in depth as uh, into the, the hats up procedure. Got the hats up procedure approved in our inspection. The inspection was super easy because we were already in a commissary kitchen. She had already approved that space. So really we had to show that we were using food safe equipment. And it's not a shelf-stable product, so we just had to show that it was uh, refrigerated immediately upon uh, the product being finished and also being refrigerated as it was brewing. So we were able to get uh, the licensing from the Department of Agriculture to get our uh, wholesale food manufacturer license, and then we were able to start selling right away. And with, uh, you know, I used to sell beer, and so selling kegs was something I was very comfortable with. And so we were able to get off to a quick start. And it's, I've always said it's easy to sell something when it's a great product. And so that's kind of how we got to start with Filterra. Now, we're at the point now that we outgrew the commercial, uh, commercial kitchen very quickly, mainly in storage space, is that uh, we ran out of fridge space to be able to store all of our brewers while we were brewing. And it started to get really expensive because our dry storage kept increasing in space as we had to store all of this equipment and our extra inventory of roasted beans and this and that. And it got to the point that we were paying more in a month than if we had gone out and found our own lease. Now, we got fortunate that a local kombucha company called Bootlegger Kombucha, owned by Jake Hanneman, uh, Brandon knew him and reached out and asked if he had extra space. And so we almost did kind of both of the commercial kitchen things where we went out to a, a commissary kitchen with like 10 different shared businesses in one space. And we've now moved down to Apple Valley, Minnesota, brewing in a space with another uh, complementary product. And that's if you're sharing a space with somebody, make sure that your products can be produced in the same space, uh, both from a physical space side, but also cr make sure there's no cross-contamination happening and that there's very clear procedures put in place so both sides are happy with the partnership. So I think that's all I can really fit into a podcast episode about how to start a small food and beverage business. I'd love to hear any feedback about questions you have about specific items within this, or if there's something I need to clarify, expand on, or if something I said straight up didn't make sense. So I guess I'll end it like I ended the first episode and just say, have a great day.